0: The Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Teach us to discern your hand in all your works, and your likeness in all your children. The topic today is creation, and we have three substantial texts, of uh, the two creation accounts. At the beginning of Genesis, which is the beginning of of the whole scripture, uh, Romans 8, of course, and this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We will just seek to skip a smooth stone over the still uh, surface of that great and deep uh, pool. But we begin at the beginning today, or almost 27 verses into Genesis. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Remember that when this whole thing of creation began, right back at chapter 1, verse 1, the state of things was total chaos. There were things at the beginning of creation, but... uh, They're grouped as a Hindiatis, actually, which is made of two words. We'll get technical right away. Tohu, which means void and empty, and bohu, (coughs) a word that means something that is formless, chaotic, and disordered. There has to be something there for any of this to hold, and Genesis presupposes a creatio ex nihilo. That has already happened before the text, But the text begins with a work in progress, well, in arrested development, let's say. There's potential here, but left to its own, nothing is going to happen. And there's nothing here in this wild, trackless wilderness to lead one to expect anything to happen soon. God sets things going then in these six days. And when he makes Adam and Eve in his kingly likeness, he charges the royal couple with a mandate of prosperity and peace fill the earth with life, you fill that empty void, and then you order it, you domesticate it if you like, subdue it, you tame its wildness, calm it down. There is no suggestion here that God's vice regents should act like despots, plundering and despoiling God's creation for their own perceived good. That this happens soon enough, And that the church to this day regularly follows the world and buying into such a scheme is the tragedy of a fallen world. And the reason that God himself has to come and live and die here, redeeming in the process the disaster that self-centered, self-obsessed humanity has made of his world. But we get ahead of ourselves. In this there is the promise of culture too. But not the cities that spring up outside the garden walls, when Adam and Eve are evicted and the gate is closed. No, there is the promise here of something more gracious, a life that can be lived with delicacy and grace, humans and creation in total harmony, that the ecological traces will be elegant and the carbon footprint light. Again, I say, not for long. You've got one more chapter and it all goes. But let's look, as we abide here, at the economic plan which, which, with which God entrusts his stewards. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, take care of it then, watch over it, he's saying. You are responsible, says the Lord, not just for all the species with which I have stocked the fields and forests and skies and oceans, but for all the species that those species shall produce, We get the hint of biodiversity here. Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Note that to neither humans nor to animals has God given animals for food. This is intentional. Neither humans nor animals are carnivores at creation. That comes later with the flood, as you recall. The trophic pyramid then must have been rather flat. And the notion of competition for scarce resources is nowhere indicated here. There are no predators and no prey. Everything got along, and we have the validation for this when we look ahead to what the new creation will look like in the words of the prophet Isaiah. Same thing. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Pretty unambiguous, and I take these texts quite literally, whatever else we might do with them. This is the narrative arc, come back from heaven to earth. Natural predators, enemies, are at peace as they were at the beginning. And God will once again look at what he has made and As his creation speaks back to him, so to speak, pronounce it good. And so we come here on Sunday and try to step into heaven for a few hours and from there to the new creation. Get our fix on that old time religion and that perpetually new vision of what lies ahead, and then go back into the day to day world hoping that this will enable our lives to be healthier and wealthier and for us to desire to see some of that shed abroad. But from superintending the garden, which was and is our only job, by the way, the one thing with which God entrusted us, care for his world, and doing our best to ensure the safety and security of all its inhabitants for the sake of their flourishing, we have somehow along the way and it doesn't take long in scripture made ourselves the final link in a food chain and done everything we can to get everything else into that chain feeding us and and do and then from there have done everything we can to defend our lonely and self-assigned place on the top of the trophic pyramid in the meantime the creatures have fallen into the self-seam degradation, as Paul says, devouring, tearing, and biting one another, as we do to them and to one another. This is life in a fallen world. Let me remind you, this is not God's plan at the beginning. It is not what we look forward to at the end. We endure it now, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, all creatures and humans living together in harmony. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves the Holy Spirit also guides our prayers with groans. and Romans 8 gives us a wonderful sense of that alliance between the Holy Spirit of God and the creation which with the Son that Spirit also brought into being. Now we need once and for all to recognize futility for what it is. Futility and not make it the key to worldly success as we tend to do. But we have also to recognize the futility of trying to reintroduce a kingdom model model of community and drop it onto a fallen world, to reconstruct heaven on earth, failing the necessary inner transformations which only God can and will effect in his good time, in the interim between his shiny new creation which awaits us and this sin-sick and weary old planet which we inhabit. There are, however, ways to renounce our place on the top of the pyramid in the meantime, and in doing so, proclaim the kingdom and the king. One of those is to reach out, to seek out the society of those who are most unlike us. One of the aspects of the fall is that we tend to like those who are like us, and the creation which God had brought together in order has fallen into that utter disorder, a place full of dislikes, conflicts, and worse. We need to begin to bridge that gap as followers of Jesus by going out of our comfort zone, extending our hand to the strangers on our doorstep, or leaving the comfort of home to seek out those in distress on theirs. Our work with refugees does the first, and it allows us, as well, face-to-face, to encounter the people to whom God's blessing is extended as we extend it. And our little mission to KDS in Nairobi does the second. And both of these bless us with the opportunity for real relationships between ourselves and the beneficiaries of God's grace, not just disinterested drive-by benevolence, as admirable as that is. Closer to home, the opportunities to reach beyond those who are like us challenges us to embrace the entire world which God has put under our care. For it's not just humanity for whom we are entrusted, but also the welfare of the entire created order. As the government has signaled to us its intention to surrender its leadership in environmental stewardship, We can make advocacy here front and center of our mission activities, and we will be doing that. The answers to our questions will only be provided by doing more science, not less. This is no time to shut down the scientific investigation into the environment. And we run the risk of doing the kind of harm ourselves and to ourselves that may be beyond our power to undo If we simply allow the work to go undone, so the church assumes her responsibility. So much of the excessive consumption of matter and energy that causes us to build our pyramids higher and higher is based on fear. The fear that we will never have enough of this world's goods to ensure our way of life, our standard of living, And fear has become so much the motivating power for our government and our economy in recent weeks and months that we sometimes have to remind ourselves that we didn't always live in such a supercharged environment. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't worry about your life, the state of things in your world, your nation, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Look around you. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather their wealth into barns. They don't hoard up very substantial accounts of money that they'll never spend. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And which of you, by being anxious, by being fearful, What will happen to your body when the doctor comes back with his report can add a single hour to his span of life. Where is your faith? Jesus is saying. So as we await the final restoration of all things, let us ponder what our needs are, not our wants, which are unlimited, and seek to measure our needs against the needs of others, Maybe we have more than we need, and maybe we can meet the needs of others by simply sharing what we have. Let us stop presuming this entitlement to all we have here, stop looking for more, and seek more ways to give it away. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. They're on this restless treadmill trying to find more and more. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows what we need. We really don't have to pray for it, but it pleases him. He knows our needs before we ask. The problem is we don't want our needs. We want our wants. And we've gotten very accustomed to living the way we're living now. God gave us no mandate for this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom to come, but it's the kingdom right now, this world for which we are responsible. So let us also give a thought and open our embrace to the five million species with whom we share this planet, all of whom look to us without knowing it for their survival. And as our power to affect our environment gets greater and greater, They have every right to look to us. Let us not forget that our survival depends on theirs. And let us pray that we be made worthy of the task of caring for them, the task with which God has entrusted us, and the task, the completion of which he will demand from us an account. Amen.